Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Once again, a great pleasure and joy to welcome as our preacher today, uh, the Reverend Dr. Rob Sturdy, uh, who is the chaplain to the St. Albans Chapel, which is the Anglican Chapel uh, at the Citadel. And so he has just got back some new cadets coming this week, and so he is right back in it. And uh, we are blessed that he is here with us this morning, a great man of the word and a great preacher. So welcome, my friend. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we pray for the fulfillment of your promise that you would send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with us and to cheer us and to seal truth on our hearts and to remind us of the gospel and make us strong for the work. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that your presence by your spirit would draw people to yourself. We can't do any of these things without help. So we ask for help. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Good morning, everybody. I have been asked to preach on chapters 8 and 9 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The first letter to the Corinthians, focusing on this theme, rights and the cross. Looking at these two chapters, we have the opportunity to think biblically and theologically about our individual rights, our corporate rights. It means we have an opportunity to think about our rights and privileges and what a Christian use of these might look like. What this might mean for people whose freedoms are constrained or denied. It's interesting and important for Christians to answer questions like this. It's time well spent, but it's not only important for Christians to think through these issues. Thinking through these issues as Christians in a specifically Christian way could be important for the wider world that you and I live in who may not share our Christian commitments. How so? You might have noticed we live in a polarized society. Opposite and contradictory political ideologies are driving all of us further and further apart. It seems, at least to me, as if every conversation is eventually reduced to and read through the lens of liberals versus conservatives, Republicans versus Democrats, red states versus blue states, or some version of that. To the extent Christians themselves view themselves as participants in this polarization we will inevitably view ourselves as persons in conflict who must choose a side. And when we choose a side, when we enlist in secular partisan warfare, we lose the distinctiveness of a Christian witness, which transcends secular politics. There's another better way for Christians, and this other better way is to refuse to think through our most pressing problems as a liberal or as a conservative, but to commit to the very difficult work, and it is a difficult work because so few people are doing it. 
And it's confusing because we are not accustomed to doing it. The very difficult work of thinking through our most pressing issues and questions as Christians. Which means trusting that the resources of our Christian faith, our belief in the Holy Trinity, our understanding of the union of the divine and human natures in Christ, which is called Christology, our understanding of the church and baptism and communion has answers for us. And we'll provide better answers for our human problems than either the red states or the blue. You might think I'm proposing a middle way, a compromise. I am not proposing a compromise. You will hear I'm proposing something very different than compromise. We need to learn to seek out a Christian solution. And in seeking out a Christian solution, it means we are appealing to an otherworldly alternative that has come down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, it transcends the destructive nature of our present political discourse. Our theme of rights and the cross allows us not to exhaust this, but to practice it, to begin practicing it. So our conversation is good. It is good for the church, and it's good for the world. With that in mind, Let's begin with the problem posed by personal rights in the city of Corinth, the very problem Paul is seeking to address when he wrote this letter, the problem of personal rights in Corinth. You might remember from the preceding weeks as we've studied this letter together here at the cathedral, Corinth experienced an economic boom that was a result of being rebuilt as a Roman colony in 44 BC. After its rebirth, Corinth became prosperous and playful. And its pagan temples served as a means by which its prosperity and its playfulness could be infused with spiritual meaning. People had money to spend on food and entertainment and sex, and the pagan temples were the marketplace for all of these things. In the ancient world, good food, especially meat, was expensive. It would only be found at the tables of the prosperous. The times where meat was likely to find its way to the less prosperous was during times of playfulness. By that I mean festivals and celebrations where the wealthy shared their table with the less prosperous or the less prosperous saved up to make merry themselves on the festival days. So what's the problem in Corinth? Well, the marketplace of food and entertainment and sex is the pagan temple. Meat was prepared by pagan priests who in turn offered it in sacrifice to pagan gods. It was eaten at a sacred table where you were not only a guest of the human host, but you were guests of the pagan deity. It would be very difficult in the ancient world of Corinth to eat meat and not participate in pagan religion. Some Christians in Corinth took the view that this doesn't really matter. Why doesn't it matter? Well, their reasoning went as follows. Pagan gods aren't real gods. Pagan gods are imaginary gods. And if the pagan gods aren't real, it doesn't matter if we eat meat that was dedicated to a make-believe god. We see this in chapter 8, verse 1. Some Corinthians claim to have knowledge. Knowledge of what? 
Well, knowledge in verse 4 that these idols have no real existence. And that there is no God but one. This one God in verse 6 is the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist. One Lord Jesus Christ through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. Because there's only one God, the pagan gods celebrated at these meals are nothing more than fantasy, nothing more than make-believe, an opportunity to engage in further playfulness. In other words, these Christians claimed, given their knowledge, there's nothing wrong with the practice. Since there's nothing wrong with the practice, they had a right to participate. Paul concedes the point and even affirms that Christians who think this way have the right to do this thing. Verse 9. They have the exousia, a Greek word translated here as right. We'll return to it later. To eat at these meals. But that doesn't mean they should. Because if we read further, Paul warns the exercise of this right, the exercise of this exousia could become what he calls a stumbling block to the weak. That is, the exercise of this right could cause other Christians to trip and fall in their faith. What did Paul mean by that? Well, in chapter 8, verse 7, Paul wrote, there are some, through a former association with idols, that eat food as if it really is offered to the idol. Unlike the people we mentioned just a minute ago who believe there's only one God, the pagan idols are blocks of wood and stone, there were some Christians in Corinth who still ascribed power and personality to the pagan gods. So to sit down at a festival meal for these Christians or to eat meat offered to an idol for these Christians would be for them to betray their faith by returning to the pagan spiritual practices prevalent in Corinth. Did Christians who had the knowledge that there's only one God, that idols are just wood and stone, have the right to eat such meals? Yes. But if they exercise this right, Paul says, you just might destroy the faith of those Christians who don't have this knowledge. By your knowledge, he says in chapter 8, verse 11, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. From participating in such festivals, they would destroy their own Christian witness in the eyes of their brothers and sisters, or by re-entering the pagan world, it would tempt them to do the same, and then they'd violate their own conscience. That's the problem in Corinth. And the problem in Corinth introduces us to a perennial problem. And the perennial problem is that any time that we acknowledge persons in the building have rights, we will be in conflict over those rights. We have a conflict between these two groups of Christians in the same church, and the conflict is over rights. One group who Paul calls the strong has a right they wish to exercise, but if this right is exercised, it will harm the other group that Paul calls weak. How can these two the strong and the weak, given the circumstances, not come to view one another as mutual enemies. How could the strong not see the weak 
as nothing more than people who stand in their way of the free exercise of their rights. How could the weak not see the strong as privileged and clumsy and irresponsible? How could one not view the other as a perpetual source of frustration, preventing them from securing the right to fully enjoy their privilege on the one hand, or on the other, preventing them from being free and fully safe from the destructive behavior of the other? Of course, these tensions are not limited to ancient Corinth, but are fully alive in the present moment. They, invest, they manifest themselves in a variety of different ways. I'm not going to tell you how they manifest, because I've been ordained since 2006, and I've learned there's only so far I can go on a Sunday morning. How do we extract ourselves from perpetual conflict. Well, Paul's solution in chapter 9 is to share with the Corinthian Christians his own approach to this problem of personal rights and liberties. Pick up in verse 3 of chapter 9, and he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's talking about himself and Barnabas. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Paul has the right, the exousia, to eat food, including meat. He has the right, the exousia, to drink, presumably wine, even if the Baptists say he can't. He has the right, the exousia, to marry as many of the apostles did. He has the right, the exousia, to receive gifts to support his ministry. This Greek word exousia, which the ESV has translated as right in the broadest sense, means that he has the ability and the power and the permission to perform an action. There were people in Corinth who thought the highest expression of their rights was to exercise them. If I have the right to eat, I will eat. If I have the right to marry, I will marry. If I have the right to receive gifts, I will receive gifts. But Paul introduces them to the idea that the fullest expression of rights and the freest expression of rights is not necessarily obtained in their exercise, but the freest expression is laying them aside in service of others. Paul introduces us to this idea that the exercise of our rights is only free if we are free to lay them down. To actually set them aside in service of both Christian brothers and sisters, and critically, and this is very important, also to set them aside in service of people who do not share our faith and do not share our commitments. I have made no use of these rights, he says in verse 15. Why? Beginning in verse 19, he explains it. I am free from all. 
but I've made myself a servant to everyone that I might win more of them. Rather than engaging in this conflict of rights, Paul has chosen to voluntarily set aside his rights so that he can serve his community. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I'm not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some of them. And I do it, I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. It's a strategy for conversion. I do it that I might win some but it's more than a utilitarian strategy to win converts. It's more than that. At a deeper level, it's a reflection on the nature of who the God is that we worship in here today. Revealed in Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he says this, in the way you relate to one another, you should have the same mind that Jesus Christ has. What is it? Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. The centerpiece of our faith is the story of a person, the divine Son of God, equal with God, equal in what? Equal in power, equal in authority, equal in privilege, equal in exousia, equal in rights. It's the center of our story. And what did this man at the center of the story do? He laid each of these aside and became a servant voluntarily in the highest expression of freedom. He who was Lord of all voluntarily took on the form of a servant. He who was divine voluntarily was made in human likeness. He who received the worship of the Old Testament people of Israel voluntarily humbled himself he who was the Lord of life voluntarily became obedient. The Lord of life voluntarily became obedient. To what? Death. Even death on a cross. The Christian gospel is the story of the divine Son of God freely setting aside his rights and privileges, and he had a reason to do so. His reason was he loves humankind and our salvation depends upon the strong son of God refusing to exercise his exousia his rights and his privileges so that he could serve the weak 
in the language of the old hymn, this is my story. This is my song. What in the world does this mean for the average Christian? I'm glad you asked. For the average Christian, this means learning to, in the words of the German reformer Martin Luther, it means learning to give myself as Christ to my neighbor. Just as Christ gave himself to me. Luther believed the only proper response to the work of Jesus Christ in laying aside his own rights for the sake of love was to learn, and we must learn, was to learn how to set aside our own rights and our own privileges as an act of gratitude towards God and love towards neighbor. Therefore, wrote Luther, I will do nothing in this life except what I see is necessary, profitable, and salutary to my neighbor. Since, through faith, I have an abundance of all good things in Jesus Christ. If we're wondering what this might look like in practice, we have an abundance of practical examples in the New Testament, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, you have the right to self-defense. No one is denying that. But if you're committed to giving yourself as Christ to your neighbor, you may freely set aside your right and offer the other cheek. Is that not what the Lord Jesus says? You have a right to personal property, but if you are committed to giving yourself as Christ to your neighbor, you may freely set aside this right and give to anyone who asks. Is that not what the Lord Jesus says? In Luke chapter 6, verse 30. I have been told that these are metaphors for the spiritual life. I have been told that these are too impractical for the modern world. They are not a metaphor, and I would suggest to you a man who dies naked and alone on a cross is not overly consumed with practicality. I could go on, you get the point. In each of these things, Jesus is inviting us into his own way of doing things into the divine life. It's the way that brought about our salvation. The fullness of freedom and setting aside power and authority and rights and privileges as an expression of gratitude, as an acknowledgement that this is the way, as an expression of love towards neighbor. Now you see there's no middle ground. This is not a conciliation between two warring ideologues. This is an alternative that comes from another world. That's one. Two, you may wonder what this means for oppressed people. By oppressed people, I mean people who have a thumb on their back. It is well and good, you might think, for people of power and privilege, like myself, to set aside these rights and privileges for the sake of the neighbor, but what of those persons whose rights are curtailed by the powerful? Don't they have the freedom and the right to fight for themselves? Yes. You may not know this, but Jesus actually attracted freedom fighters into his little band of disciples. 
Simon Zelotes, the Zelotes being a name of a certain band of freedom fighters who wanted to overthrow the Roman occupation. Judas Iscariot of the Scari. Different group, same objective. Which is surely why on the eve of his arrest, when his own disciples drew swords, Jesus rebuked them and said, do you think I can't call on my father right now and 12 legions of angels will come and put an end to this? Don't you know I have the exousia, the right to do that? But salvation begins, doesn't it, when Jesus sets aside the right? I have the right and the power to defend myself, Jesus says. Power beyond your imagination, but I set it aside to save even my enemies, even if it's costly. Well, where I'm from, there was a generation of people who wrestled with a thumb on their back. I'm from Alabama. And there were Christians in Alabama. And they did it in Birmingham, and they did it in Selma, and they did it on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They set aside their right to be safe. They set aside their right to be treated with dignity. They set aside their right not to be beaten. And they marched in Selma, and they marched in Birmingham, and they crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and they were Christians, you see. I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just letting you know, once upon a time, Christians did this. They transformed the fabric of where I'm from more than anyone else that I know of. And they did not just do it to secure rights for themselves. They set aside these things very intentionally, also for the sake of their enemies. People filled with hate, people filled with violence, people who are racist, they're not strong people, they're weak people. But they can be won through costly acts of love. They can be won. And so in this generation of Christians in Sweet Home, Alabama, we have an example of going about this in a different way and winning even those who would oppose us. It takes a long time, that's what Stanley Howard said, requires patience. The ark is long, but it bends towards justice, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. said. Good Friday must give way to the beat of the Eastern drum, but it does give way. What does it mean for the average person exploring Christianity? And I am actually done now, if you're worried. If you're here and you're wondering what it all means. Sometimes religion can be set up as a conflict of interests. What do I mean by that? There is a conflict, you may have heard, between a holy God and sinful mankind. That is the way a lot of world religions operate. The holy God will one day claim his exousia, his rights, his authority, and his power to punish. But the Christian gospel announces no such conflict. 
because the Christian gospel announces that the holy God has set aside his exousia and he gave up everything he had to win everything you are. We have no conflict to announce to you today, but an invitation to enter into the peace that passes all understanding. Lay down your arms and enter into faith through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is a hard word. We pray for those of whom this is a hard word, that you would be gentle and loving and giving enough to them to lead them into a place of maturity. For those of us challenged by this, Lord Jesus, excite us with the possibilities to those of us exploring who you are. We pray that they would have heard something they can take home today. Seal it deeply in their hearts, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.